right, good morning. It's about 10 o'clock. Uh, we're continuing the story of uh, the kings of Israel. Uh, this, this week we're chapter 18 19. The Catholic bishop who split the Bible up did a horrible job. He splits all the stories up. The chapter. He tried to make the chapters so that they're understandable, but he puts chapter breaks right in the middle of all the stories. So half the time, it's like uh, you have a story arc going, and it's like, oh, chapter break, oh, first break. Uh, and then he puts the chapters in the wrong spots. So today, when we talk about 18, 19, we really have to talk about 17, 18, 19, 20, because there's this little story arc here. Uh, and then after chapter 20, we're going to start another story arc. Uh, So I found this uh, helpful map. For the next little bit, this is the map of what goes on in the story. Because we don't live there, so a lot of times we don't understand when they say we're going to this city or we're going to that city, what they're, what they're trying to say uh, from culture and from geography. That's a great Yeah. Uh, and so... All the story that's occurred in Samuel so far has occurred in this little area. Uh, the Philistines are down here, Gab and Ekron are two other big cities. Uh, Samuel does the little route. Uh, hey, Bethel's one of the city in this spot, is where, uh, sorry, you get over here? I said, you think I burned my nose on the other side. That's right. Uh, that's right. So I stand in the same place every week. I point the same way. Because my computer it has to plug in. It only goes so far. Uh, so a lot of what's going on is occurring in about a 20 or 30 or most 40 mile range area. So when you hear stories of David going out, of Samuel leading the troops out, of Saul leading the troops out, you're only talking about maybe 20 miles here between Jerusalem and, the down, and down to the uh, plains. Uh, there's, a, as you can see, this has got some topography, it's very mountains here. So the Philistines lived out here in the plains. The Jews lived up in the mountains, which is also why Jews are, by and large, sheep herders and goat herders, because sheep and goat can live in mountains. As you remember, uh, Two and a half of the tribes who were cattle herders, when they came into the, the promised land, said, we don't want to go over there. It's too mountainous. We have cattle. So they live on the other side of the Jordan River, where it's flat. And so that kind of sets up the story of Samuel. And so here, uh, for the next, to the, actually to the end of the book, uh, Sorry, the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, this is where we're going to, the entire story takes place here. You start off at number one. Hey, Jeff. Yes. Just, just to put that into perspective, too. If you look at the Jordan River from Dead Sea, it's 50 miles from there to Galilee, yeah. which is where Jesus spent all his time. So Jesus didn't spend a lot of time here except in Jerusalem. Right. So, I mean, this is not, so even when you flash to the New Testament and we get some of the later. 
books of the Old Testament, we're not talking long distances here. Uh, like I said, Galilee is probably just above where the roof is. Uh, so you're talking 20 miles to here. Uh, so David uh, grows up in, of course, Bethlehem. Uh, this is about five miles. Uh, not very far. Bethlehem is a suburb of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, uh, it, the reason Bethlehem sits there is that it's, it's sheep central for uh, uh, the Jews. When the, when the Day of Atonement comes, all the sheep are gathered at Bethlehem because it's a large flat area, and you can put all the sheep there. Uh, the Romans know this because, go back to New Testament times, when the Jews in AD 70 rebel, Rome turns Bethlehem into their staging ground. Uh, they go in and level Bethlehem, which is only a small village anyways, and build fortresses and churches there that they use to level Jerusalem, for the fight of Jerusalem, and they end up leveling Jerusalem. And then they come back in 135, the next time the Jews rebel, and do the same thing. Uh, it's a very convenient place if you're going to attack Jerusalem to sit. That's where David, that's where David grows up, Bethlehem. Uh, Saul creates his, uh, basically puts his house in uh, Gibeon, because this is where Benjamin is. Uh, and so a lot of the stories today are going to revolve around this area. Uh, and then when you, when you read in Samuel that the Jews and the Philistines fight, the Philistines don't go into the mountains very often. Again, they have chariots. They have lots of people. They don't want to fight in the mountains. And there's also nothing in the mountains that they want. So when you see these fights, they occur here on the edge between where the Jews are and where the Philistines are. Uh, and then when David flees, which we'll story next week, he goes to Samuel, who's in Ramah, uh, then he runs down to Nob, there's a whole series of stories around that. Uh, then he runs over here, uh, pretends to be insane, joins the Philistines, which is an interesting thing, since he spends... 10 years killing all the Philistines, he then runs and becomes part of the Philistines. Uh, and then he get, gets his own army, then he marches down here, and eventually, uh, when, when he gets the end of this, I know this, I'm telling you the end of the book, but Saul dies. He doesn't survive his own. This is kind of like Game of Thrones, I know that's a shocker, that, 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 that he's going down. But, uh, Saul dies, and David becomes king. And the important part is when you're reading some of the stuff we're reading, people tend to, re we know the end of the story, right? We know that Saul's going to die, David's going to become king. When you read this, you have to read it contemporaneously with the story, which is that David knows he's anointed king. Nobody else knows other than Samuel and David's family. Uh, and so you have to understand, when you read this, you have to read that culturally. With that, all right. So there, this is a good little map. This will probably show up again as we hit these stories, so you can see the distances involved here, which is not a lot. I mean, uh, this is about five miles. So Bethlehem down here to where Masada is is about 15 miles. Uh, that's about a day. That's an easy day's walk. All right. Let's talk a little about what are covenants in the Old Testament. When you hear the word covenant, it shows up 
at least three times between David and Jonathan. What is a covenant? It's an agreement. Uh, but it's more than an agreement. We tend to think of you know agreements kind of like, hey, are you going to, you know, you're going to ask somebody, let's go out to eat after lunch today. Where do you want to go? I'll meet you at uh, McAllister's. That's not a covenant. That's an agreement. Yeah, I'll, I'll get there. And if I don't show up, you'll call me and go, oh, something came up. Oh, no, no big deal. An a covenant is much more serious than that. Uh, there are two parties, one superior, one's inferior. It's, this, is not a, this is not two equals. There's always a superior person in covenant. Uh, there's always a sacrifice. Uh, it's usually written, and usually each party would get a each party would get a copy, so that down the road you could undo your covenant. Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, and then there's always a feast that that goes along with the agreement. This is the original one, uh, Genesis. Uh, Abraham is in the in the promised land. Uh, God comes and talks to him. And he says, you know, he promises, here's all the land I promised to you and your descendants. And he, and he lays it out for him. And then Abraham says, how do I know that I will gain possession of it? And so the Lord says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, he's three years old, a dove, and a pigeon. Uh, which tells you this is a serious covenant. Because there are big animals, small animals, there are lots of them. Uh, and he brings them to them, and he cut them all in two. So I want, I want you to put this in your mind. He cut a cow in two and laid half on each side. He cut, cuts a goat, a ram, and lays them on each side of a uh, trench dug. And then he has, then, as you might imagine, the birds of prey, i.e. the vultures, came, and Abraham drove them away. And then Abraham fell into deep sleep, and the Lord said, no, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers, and then they will be enslaved and mistreated. Then I'm going to bring them back. And so a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between. The, the superior of the two goes first. He walks in the trench between the two halves. And basically says, if I don't keep my word, what you have done to these animals, you can do to me. That's how serious a covenant is. And then usually the second party would walk through. Then you would take all those animals and you would cook them and have a feast. That's a covenant. Now you see echoes of that in the communion. It's, except, you know, we're not walking in the bloody trenches and we're getting uh, chiclets. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that later. When we get the New Testament, we'll get to talk about what communion is really supposed to look like. Uh, this is the original one. This is Abraham. Uh, and then uh, we have, uh, I think this is Isaac. Uh, and next generation, Abimelech comes to him and says, Isaac says, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? And he said, let's, let's cut a covenant between us. Literally, it, it means cut a covenant because you're cutting the animals in half. Uh, we saw the Lord was with you, so he said, there should be a covenant between us because we're doing poorly when we go up against you. And so they did the same thing. They, made, they had a covenant. They made a feast of the animals they ate and drank. They swore an oath, and they went away peacefully. So that's Abraham. That's Isaac. So if you're a Jew, that's two of the great fathers of the Jewish people. 
Now, let's talk about David and Jonathan. You will read lots of opinions about these covenants. Because uh, 18.3, which is the beginning of ours, uh, 2016 and 2316. Or three covenants that David and Jonathan do together. The first one, uh, David made a covenant Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. We're going to get him to love him in just a second. Uh, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. That's chapter 18. That's a chapter we're in. This is, so this is immediately after David kills Goliath. Uh, Saul then says, I want you to live in my household, meaning I want you to be one of my people. Uh, and so Jonathan sees David, we'll talk, we'll talk about in just a second, and they said that their spirits unite and they create a covenant. Uh, in reading the commentaries on this, it's very interesting. Again, the people who write commentaries know how their story ends. And so they said, oh, this is uh, Jonathan basically acknowledging David as the next king. And I'm throwing the BS flag. I'll say BS. All right. BS flag on that. You know, I love that little commercial about the red flag. You know, you know let, let's review what you actually did. <laughs> uh, this is not Jonathan telling David he's going to be the next king. Do it. You know, we, Game of Thrones, right? How many kings can there be? How many crown princes can there be? Right? If there are two crown princes, what happens? One of them's going to die. Because there can only be one. Uh, as we were last, my favorite line out of Game of Thrones was they go to one little girl who says, Do you want to be a queen? She goes, no, I don't want to be a queen, I want to be the queen. And that's this. You don't want to be a king, you want to be the king above everyone else. So Jonathan is crown prince. He's the oldest son of Saul. He leads Saul's, a large part of Saul's army. Uh, so what? So in this covenant, Jonathan is a superior. David is the inferior. What he's doing is bringing him into the family. Because remember, what did Saul promise to the guy who killed uh, Goliath? His daughter. So what's, that, what's David about to become? The son-in-law. What's Jonathan doing here? He's trying to remind David, who's the crown prince? Jonathan, not David. David's got David's super popular. He just killed Goliath. Everyone's remember singing the songs about Saul has killed his hundreds, David has killed his thousands. So David is, you know, if he had an Instagram, it'd be super hot right now. Everyone would be, you know, texting David to get on his Instagram. Uh, Jonathan's been around a while. Jonathan and David are not the same age. A lot of times, uh, Randall and I were talking about this. We tend to think of these guys as best buddies the same age. There's probably 10 years difference between the two. Because Jonathan is the oldest son. Well, we know several things. One, David is not yet 20. Because he's not a soldier. Jesse sends him with the food for his older brothers who are soldiers, so they're older than 20. David is not a soldier yet. And that's what his brothers say when they get there. Why are you here? 
you're not a soldier yet. You're not, you'd be a soldier in, in the Jewish faith, you'd be 20. So we know David's less than 20. Uh, not even more. What? Not even more. No, he's probably, you know, time has progressed here a little bit. The, the author of Samuel's not great at telling us, and hey, by the way, time has gone by. Uh, David is older here. But when David comes, and Jonathan will be his old, uh, Saul's oldest son, he's probably in his upper 20s. So there's probably about 10 years difference in the two. Uh, but Jonathan sees David, uh, and they create a covenant between the two of them, basically saying, uh, and, and also you think about this, what, what's the role of the king? What's his number one role? Military leader. His job was to go out and protect the people. That is not a low-risk occupation. So if you're Jonathan, what's Jonathan's major role? To be ready to be king and to lead the, a large group of soldiers. Also, not a low-risk occupation. So what Jonathan's doing here is David, his soon-to-be brother-in-law, he's telling him, if something happens to me, take care of my family. And David is the same thing in reverse. Is, if something happens to you, I'll take care of your family. That's what they're doing here. Yes? Who knows about the anointment at this point? Who all? Samuel. Even here. Just, Even here. Just Samuel and David. All right. If, if, just, if Saul knew David was anointed, <laughs> what's David's last name? <coughs> Zero. Zero. Correct. He would be dead. Because what does Samuel say when God told him to go anoint him? He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Saul knows I'm going to anoint another king, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill Samuel, who is easily the most influential guy in uh, Israel at this time. So, if he's worried, if Samuel's worried about that, nobody knows besides David's family and Samuel. The fact that David is alive tells you that. Because, again, if David is now an ordinary new king, what sets say, say about Jonathan's lifespan? Jonathan's dead. Uh, all the other brothers are dead. Because what happens if you leave extra people alive? They lead a rebellion because they want to be king. So, nobody knows that David is anointed other than David's family and Samuel. Samuel's still alive during this period. Alright, next time comes up uh, channel, uh, channel 20. Chapter 20. Uh, they again make a covenant. May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And uh, that'll be a little bit of today's. And then they had David reaffirm his oath of love out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So they redo it again. Remember, by chapter 20, there's, there's been some issues. I.e., Saul has tried to kill David at least four different times. At least four different times, maybe more. Uh, and so Jonathan comes, and so if you're David, and the king has tried to kill you multiple times, Jonathan comes up to you. It's it's really good for David if Jonathan's looking at him going like, "Yeah, I'm still reaffirming this covenant we had that we are brothers of this covenant. That I'm I'm going to take care of you. You're going to take care of me." Even though 
Saul the king. By, by chapter 20, Jonathan, uh, David is the son-in-law. The son of He's married the younger sister by then. So he's actually part of the royal household. Saul's trying to kill him. And so David and Jonathan reaffirmed their covenant at that point, uh, which is important because that tells David that Jonathan is not going to do what his dad asked, which is kill him. And then we get down to the last one in 23. By chapter 23, David is now in rebellion. He's now run away because he cannot live in the city because Saul has tried to kill him so many times. So David's actively in rebellion in chapter 23. This is where you see the flipping of the relationship. Uh, and Saul's son Jonathan went to David, Horish, and helped him find strength in God. We'll talk about that when we get to 23. Uh, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. At this point, Jonathan recognizes the fact that David's about to become king. Uh, and so... Now the covenant becomes the other way. David is the superior in this covenant. Uh, and I will be second to you. And if you think about it, it's fine because David is married to Saul's daughter. So David is, in fact, can be named the inheritor. If, if you go back to what the Romans do a thousand years from now, they did this all the time. The emperor would... An, he, wouldn't, he would have multiple children. He would name his heir. It wouldn't be his oldest son. It almost never was his oldest son. Uh, and so he would name who the heir was. So if that's what you're seeing here is Jonathan going, okay, okay, I can handle that you're going to be king, and I'm going to be number two, because we're brothers. Because once you marry into the family, you're brothers. Uh, and so even my father Saul knows this. So he's telling me, even at this point, Saul realizes that David's going to be king, that God is with David. Uh, and two of them made a covenant before God. Then Jonathan went home, and David remained in Horish. Those are the three covenants that occur in this book between David and Jonathan. And so culturally, it's, it's important to understand what's going on. It's not just an agreement. They are, becoming, they are family, and they're becoming even more enmeshed as family. So David's going to say, I'm going to take care. If anything happens to you, no, there's no social security. I'm going to take care of your family. And Jonathan's saying, if anything happens to you, I'll take care of your family. And this last time, Jonathan is recognizing the fact that David is anointed by God based on activity and that he's going to come king. And Jonathan says, I want to be second. And David says, yes, you'll be not my number two. Uh, so those are the three covenants that are in this story, that the story arc we're doing right now. Any questions or thoughts or comments? I have yes. I'm assuming that not every covenant can be one of the covenants. When the word covenant actually in the Hebrew is kind of covenant, it literally means you will sacrifice at that point. So covenant covenant's not just an agreement, it's not a handshake. It's a much more formalized agreement on this is what we're going to do. And uh, between kings, it would be a treaty. But you could, it almost, it's more than a contract. It's really saying, you know, 
I, I, we sit down, we eat, we, we, we agree, we sacrifice, we eat. So it's very much, uh, there's an altar, there's a feast involved. When you see, when you see the word covenant, it's, it's, that's what you're talking about. It's not, yeah, I agree we eat at lunch at McAllister, but it's, it's not, it, we use the same word for various levels. Covenant is very, is very important. When you see covenant, it's a very important word. I, I would say yeah, the word is grits. Yes. It's, it's the same word as for service. Yes. Something's going to get cut. Something's going to get killed. So when yeah. they make a covenant and they eat a meal, whatever they're eating dies as a result of the covenant. So, yeah. Right. And remember, it, it, it culturally it's hard for us. Uh, in Africa where we go, uh, Typical people eat meat once a month. That's what the Jews would be eating. So, when you're cutting a covenant where you're killing an animal and eating it, that's a really big deal. Uh, you know, it's like, we, you know, we, we have burgers and fry, you know, we think nothing of eating meat. Eating meat in the third world is a, which is this area is totally a. Uh, I'm trying uh, we had a great story. Uh, last time we were, two times we go, we were in Africa. Uh, we did a hysterectomy on a lady, and her brother-in-law shows up. Uh, in his, were you there? When he pulled up in the Mercedes, pulls up in a Mercedes 325, which in Africa is like saying Rolls Royce, right? And so he stops by, he eats lunch with us, chatting. Thank you for taking on my sister. He goes, Oh, I've got a gift for you. It's the key bob out, trunk opens up, there's a goat, a live goat, in his trunk. <laughs> he goes, I brought you a goat. He goes, I did not know if you'd have meat for today. And, and we go back to America, we eat all the time. Uh, and so he gave us the goat. He's tied up, his legs are tied, but, and his mouth is tied, so he wasn't bawling very much in the back. And so we'd already had a meal plan for the week. So he so said, it was already no, 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 it was live. No, I'm saying in, the, in Africa, in the trunk, he was already it was, it was, He was getting a little warm. He was getting a little warm. Yes. He was super happy. He was super happy to get out of the trunk. And uh, so uh, we had already had our plan out uh, for what we were going to eat that week. We said, there's an orphanage attached to our hospital. And we know they get meat on Sunday and Wednesday. This was Thursday, and, or Tuesday, it was Tuesday or Thursday. We said, well, you know, let's, we'll just give the goat to the orphanage. So the house moms picked her and spoke him. So we walked the goat down the orphanage and said, we have a gift for you. They gave it to us, we're giving it to you. And the, the house mother who's cooking that day said, it's ours, we can do with it what we want. We said yes. Before I could get the S out, she had the knife, she had it cut it, she had it strung out. <laughs> because they don't eat meat very much. So when you walk a goat down, it was like, this is meat for the entire orphanage. They were, they were ecstatic. Because all the kids came up and thanked us afterwards. Thank you for the goat, thank you for the goat. We did nothing. I just walked the goat down there. Uh, one of our doctors wanted to keep it as a pet until it started waking him up in the middle of the night. They know, uh, and so, but that's, that gives you the importance of meat in this culture. It's very, 
unusual. And, then, and then, these are people that had to eat twice a week. The Jews would not have eaten meat that often. Because remember, any meat that you kill, you had to raise. So you're cutting into your future profits and you think you're eating now. So covenant's a very, very, very important word in concept in the Old Testament and carrying on through the New Testament. All right, here we go. Our David and Jonathan gang. Uh, uh, if, if you have not read this, talk to your kids. This is widely read and written about in the millennial culture. Uh, Susan Ackerman's a big author right now. Matthew Vines is a big author right now. Uh, John Fabrice Nadelli uh, is from the 60s, 70s. John Boswell's a little older. Jennings a little older. They are the first guys that kind of came out and said, this is a, a biblical example of a monogamous homosexual relationship. And so therefore, uh, oddly enough, all these authors are also homosexual and gay and are writing to justify uh, monogamous marriage in the church. Uh, the earliest that we've seen writings in, in 1319, one of the Catholic bishops said this. I had his name and I lost it when I was getting ready to redo the slide. Uh, but he basically said that this was uh, a monogamous, they did not call it homosexual in 1319, they had another term for it. And then if you look at art in the Middle Ages, Raphael and Michelangelo, you look at David, who they do a lot of, very famous Michelangelo stands for David, it's very effeminate. Uh, and there's lots, and you'll find lots of writing in modern art critique that Michelangelo made David gay so he could be gay. That may or may not be true. We don't have Michelangelo around to talk to. Uh, and same thing for Raphael. A lot of his imagery is very effeminate. Uh, and there are also, by the way, two out of the four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Which how I remember their name. So who says cartoons are not good for you? Uh, so there is, but this this seriously runs in modern Christian thought. You will find this written a lot, and they'll say, "Yeah, these, these, this was the first example of a monogamous uh, same-sex couple," and so therefore that's reason why uh, there should be uh, same-sex couples in the modern church. Uh, so are they gay? How do they get monogamous out of it? How do they get monogamous out of it? Yeah. We've got David married to Michael. We've got David married to Abigail. We got well, yeah. you're letting details get in the way of things here. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, well, that, that, that's the defense against this, is that both of them were kind of married. In fact, David had lots of wives. Uh, and they, I mean, and we know uh, Jonathan had multiple children because one of them is going to show up in the David story in here a little bit. Uh, and so part of it is that the arguments ignore culture uh, and they ignore the fact that Hebrew is not a, a widely expressive language. It does not have, it's got vocabulary around 2,000 words. So, the word for love, they'll go, oh, because it actually says David loves, Jonathan loves David. 
This love is the word that Hebrew uses for, it's, it's nonspecific. It can be, because they use the same word earlier in the book when Saul liked what David did. Same word. Uh, uh, it's the same exact word. It, it can mean love, it can mean like, it can be romantic, it's very nonspecific. You have to understand the context in which they use this word. So, uh, so David loving Jonathan Johnson loving David is it's just like I love my brother. I can love my father. It's not it's not necessarily romantic love. It, and so you have to go further than saying you know, whether the book my English translation says love. Uh, that's not exactly the word. The concept in Hebrew is not what we consider romantic love. It's a very non-specific word. Uh, so you'll, you'll say, oh, Jonathan's kissing David. Uh, that's this word, kissed. Kissed means kissed. Right, also, nonspecific. It's the same word they use in Song of Solomon, uh, which has a different connotation. But part of it you have to understand culture. Culture, that part of the world today, that part of the world in 1000 BC, is uh, you would greet each other with a kiss, the same thing. It, it's not a romantic kiss. And so, again, culture allows that word to be used. It, it doesn't force you into it's a romantic kiss. Uh, there is a, uh, several times in the here it'll say, David found favor in Jonathan's eyes. Uh, that word's even easier. It's used 76 times in the Old Testament. 75 out of the 76 times, it has to do with a superior and inferior. It's frequently used, uh, Noah found favor in God's eyes. Same exact word. It means that the superior likes what the inferior person is doing. So it's not, ooh, she's really good looking. She found favor in my eyes. That's not the concept behind this word. It's uh, always, in the Old Testament, superior, inferior. Superior and inferior. So uh, Saul, in, in the book of Samuel, Saul, David finds favor in Saul's eyes. Is that romantic? No. He killed Goliath. Of course, he was a soldier. He found favor. And so when David's finding favor in Jonathan's eyes, it's the same word, which is that he's doing what Jonathan would want him to do. As and almost all the context here is as a soldier. So as one of my inferiors, he's doing what I want him to do. So my, you know, as a boss, my employees find favor if they do what I tell them to do. That's the concept behind this word favor. Uh, again, covenant, rip, uh, cutting. Uh, again, the covenant is not a marriage. You'll see this written, especially Susan Ackerman and Matthew Bynes. Will write that a covenant is a marriage contract. It is not. Uh, a covenant is between a, two levels of people. It's not between <coughs> equals. And so when they do all these covenants, they're not <coughs> doing a marriage contract. Jonathan and David are not getting married. They are creating a covenant of friendship between two guys who there's uh, responsibilities for both halves in that covenant. Uh, and then uh, a little bit later, 
the last time Jonathan and David meet, which we'll see uh, in about two weeks, David bows in front of Jonathan three times. And so uh, Susan Ackerman particularly will say, well, that's David having sex with Jonathan. And he's like, no, 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 no. Culture. Understand culture. Why is he bowing? Who's Jonathan? He's the crown prince. Who's David? He's one of the, his brother, his brother-in-law, as well as one of the sworn fighters to Jonathan. Three bows. Three, you know, biblical three is completeness. So bowing says, I recognize that you are superior to me. It's not, uh, because it's in the scene where they shoot, we'll get to a couple where he shoots the arrows. Since Rick Brown's going to teach us, I'll set this up for him. And let him explain all this for you. They shoot the arrows, they send the boy away, and so Susan Ackerman says, well, I send the boy away because I want to have sex. No, 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 no. The boy can't see David, he's going to tell Saul. Saul's going to kill David. Uh, culture, it's pretty, it's more straightforward if you don't try to bend the culture to fit your current thought. Uh, so, like I said, understand the culture. So, all the relationships between David and Jonathan are appropriate for the culture. They're also, like I said, and they're also married. Uh, David's married by the end of 1 Samuel, he's got three wives, maybe four, at least three. By the time 2 Samuel rolls around, he's got a bunch more. He has Bathsheba and a few others. Uh, so, I mean, David is clearly not looking for same-sex partners. Two, in the culture of that day, the inferior partner in a same-sex relationship would be considered a woman. Uh, we actually have graffiti from when Caesar was rising up in power <coughs> in Rome. Uh, the graffiti says Caesar was husband to many wives, meaning he slept with lots of women who weren't married to him, and he was a wife to many husbands. That is not a compliment. Uh, that's basically saying Caesar, Caesar's a woman, we should not have him as emperor. Uh, and so that's the, the culture of those days was uh, if you were the inferior partner in a same-sex relationship, you were considered a woman. David could not rise to be king if, if culturally that's what's occurring. Jonathan would never have backed him for king. And the same thing the other way around. David's the superior, Jonathan's not. Jonathan cannot be crown prince. So you just look at culture and say that's not occurring in this situation. This is not an example of a monogamous, actually it's not monogamous because like I said they're all married. I guess monogamous with each other. What this is monogamous with each other, although ignoring the fact they're already married and already have children. Uh, so that's, are David and Jonathan gay? No. They are uh, very much acting according to the culture of, that they're in. And so you can't take their relationship and their words and transpose it 3,000 years and say, because they did it, we could do it. They're not, they're not being uh, same-sex related. They're being the crown prince and the guy who's married to the daughter of the king. They're acting exactly culturally appropriate. Can I just state yes. that this whole conversation is 
Dr. Benny has decided to go off on, on, a, on a tangent. I'm fond of biblical ambiguity, yeah. so you would have never heard this from me. Yeah. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, because yeah, you're, trust me, your kids are your kids are reading some of this, and and they and they will say, David, uh, in the Bible, the first monogamous same-sex marriage is David and Jonathan. Uh, and so I said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. You, we can talk after class. Uh, but there's lots of current literature being written that talks about this. Uh, and I said, the, the Bibles, uh, culturally, these guys are completely appropriate. They're doing what you expect them to do. All right, and the last part of chapter 1819 is, or 1819-20, is uh, Saul's constant instability. He's constantly unstable. He's like, David, I love you. Come and live in my house. Play the harp for me. Oh, while you're playing the harp, let's see if I can throw the spear for you and hit you to the wall, which he does at least three different times in this part of the story. Uh, and so I'll pin David to the wall, and he eluded him twice. So twice in this thing alone, He's trying, to, he's trying to throw a spear through it. Uh, and so, what, who was David promised to be married to? Saul's oldest daughter, because he killed. Mara. Uh, when it came time to be given to him, oh, she was given a marriage to Adriel instead. So Saul changes his mind. Uh, and then, uh, coming out here a little later, we need uh, 100 Philistine force tents because Saul's trying to have David killed by the Philistines. But surely, if he has to kill 100 guys, one of them is going to get lucky, and David dies. Uh, and then chap uh, in verse 19 and verse chapter 20, Saul told his son Jonathan and all his attendants, go kill David. You can't get more blunt than that. Just go kill him. Get rid of him. Uh, and then another verse... An evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting with the spear in his hand. Saul seems to carry his spear around a lot. We're going to see in the second half of this book, he has it with him all the time because David steals it from him once. He tried to pin with the wall with the spear. David eluded him. And that night, David made good his escape. Another verse, uh, two verses after this, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. Basically said, when he comes out in the morning, kill him. So Saul is trying to kill David through all of this, which, I mean, David's a son-in-law. I mean, your, your in-law, sometimes you have issues with him. You probably should not kill them. Uh, and, they, and by making him a son-in-law, remember, he's put David in the uh, line of, of uh, ascension. So Jonathan's first, but David's married to a daughter, so he now has a claim to the throne through Saul. So, and, so you see this constant, you'll see Saul do one thing, then he'll try to kill David. And then Jonathan, uh, there's two or three others I even put in here where he wants to kill David, Jonathan talks him out of it. And so then they put David Saul back together, and they said, oh, okay, we're, we're great, we, we're, we're friends forever. Until the next time, Saul tries to throw a spear through him. So Saul is doing this. He's getting very unstable. Uh, and he even tries to kill Jonathan in this story. John, because he says, Jonathan, which I think is your thing next week. I don't know. It runs yeah. together. It all runs, yes. 
But, you know, Jonathan, oh, you love David more than you love me. Therefore, he tried to kill Jonathan, the crown prince, at dinner. Uh, and so you see Saul becoming more and more unstable and up and down as this story goes. And, you know, as we know, as leaders of a country, you don't like an unstable king. You want consistency. And so we're going to see in this story as it goes on that plays into David's hands. Uh, that people will start coming to him because he's consistent and Saul is not. Alright, how much time? Oh, we got one minute left. Any questions? So that's so the story we've got is David, somewhere under the age of 20, kills Goliath. David is gets taken into Saul's household, uh, and then he grows into a warrior. And he leads, he's appointed, leads uh, parts of Saul's troops. He becomes very successful against the Philistines. They know his name. Uh, he's a, he becomes a very famous warrior. He marries Saul's number two daughter, Michael. Uh, Jonathan and David create covenants. Uh, Saul tries to kill him. David runs away. David comes back. Saul tries to kill him again. They go back and forth during this period of time to the point that Starting next week, uh, with uh, Randall's going to tell you this, David has to become a rebel. He's going to become a complete rebellion. Mm -hmm. All right. Yes? Can you tell me a good commentary on the evil spirit from God coming from the Lord? Oh, you missed last week. We had the end of the discussion. Oh. We solved it now. It's the concept is does the evil spirit come directly from God or does the evil spirit because God's spirit was previously there and he left does the evil spirit come in uh, I think mean, we talk about the Mishnah which is the Jewish writings on this would say the latter that it's there's a, uh, Jesus actually uses that in one of his parables he says you know the man kicked the evil spirit out and cleaned the house and left it empty and then uh, the evil spirits came back and looked and said, oh, it's a clean house. And so seven more moved in, which were worse than the first. Uh, that's a very typical Jewish story, which is how they would interpret that, is that the spirit of God left, because they're, they're binary. There's either God or, or devil. There's no gray area in between. So once God leaves, then you leave room that the devil would lead in. It's not, it's not the way, the way, at least my theology, uh, is that it's not God sending the evil spirit to him saying, I'm going to torment this guy. It's the fact that the spirit of God is left. Or probably more appropriately, Saul, Saul was on the pathway that God had set for him. Saul has left his pathway. So the spirit of God is still going the, the direction it's supposed to be going, but Saul has now gone over here. So the spirit's no longer in him. And so then that, that's, he's basically a, a vessel who's deviating from the, the good path. And so that allows the opportunity for evil to invest in. That's kind of how I think of it. I don't get paid for this. I just get paid for people to sleep. <laughs> so if you don't like that theology, I will talk about it after class. All right. We'll see you next week. Or Randall will see you next week. <laughs>